Metadata helps you get noticed, it helps you get discovered, and it helps you get paid are the big, big things. Hi, everyone. Welcome to How Music Charts, where we pull back the curtain on today's music business, exploring music industry trends, music data, and the creativity that helps your favorite artists hit the charts. I'm your co-host, Rutger, and you'll hear from our other co-host, Jason, soon. This podcast is owned and operated by Chartmetric, a music data company that connects numbers to narratives to help the music industry leverage the power of data analytics. Our guest today is Mark Brown, founder of Beta, a music sharing app that lets artists, studios, and managers share, collaborate on, and promote secure music files before uploading them to streaming services. Mark is currently based in Stockholm, Sweden, though he is originally from Canada and spent many years in London working in A&R and artist promotion. On this episode, we discuss how we came to found Beta, what sets the app apart from Dropbox and SoundCloud, and what this might mean for the future of hi-fi audio and NFTs. So, please welcome to the How Music Charts podcast, Mark Brown. Hello, good sir. Hey, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. Likewise, Thanks for having likewise. me. Of course, of course. And you're, uh, for those who are listening, um, Mark is coming to us from the beautiful, it looks like island, island state of, of Sweden. <laughs> yeah, I love using, well, well, we're on Zoom and I love using this Hawaii background that came with the app, especially when you've never talked to someone for the first time. You throw on the background and people's faces are like, Oh my God, who's this guy? So it's it, throughout the pandemic, it's been a brilliant icebreaker. I love it. I love it. Uh, so <clears throat> we we did a little bit of research, a little bit, and you've got a lot of uh, you've got a lot of um, content out there, which is great. Um, one of the more recent ones was from May 2021 this year, from the Behind the Music podcast, which I thought was really a really great listen. And I wanted to start with a quote uh, that you had because I think it, it says a lot about kind of how you view kind of your career. You go, I want to do stuff that's exciting. I want to learn stuff. I want to feel like I'm making a tr- contribution. Because the antidote to the hard work and frustration, because the music industry can be very frustrating, is that you're making a contribution. Can you talk about that a little bit? Huh. Wow, I've never had anyone read one of my own quotes back before. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, like I worked in music for years, which we'll probably talk about um, before I started Beta. But I think you meet a lot of people who work in music in the music industry, especially who ultimately you don't make a lot of money. It's a lot of long hours. It's quite grueling. I think mental health's a big issue in the music industry these days across all the music, the whole music ecosystem. And I think it's a lot of it comes from people really believe in what they're doing. And music really connects people on an emotional level. And I think people who get into music, most of them are, really in it because they love it so much and they believe in it so much and they want to feel like they have an impact somehow. And I like, you could easily go work in a bank or do something more fun or less stressful. But I think a lot of people choose to work in music or anything to do with art because I view music as art uh, because they're super passionate about it and they want to see change for the better, be that their, their favorite artists become popular or, the way the business works changes for the better for artists because you know the business has changed for the better over the last 50 years we're just not completely there yet 
And we are about to get into your, you know, your music industry creds in a second. But another question that we just found really fascinating about your background is what else came out during that other podcast was what you're currently reading right now in university. Uh, theoretical philosophy, as well as the history of intellectual fact. So can you, can you talk about kind of your, your sense of curiosity and, and you know, how that's kind of weaved in and out of your, of your career? That's fine. Well, what happened was, this is quite funny, like I dropped out of university twice. And then I ended up, I moved to Sweden and I started going to school to learn Swedish. And then they're like, oh, well, university, this is going to blow your mind. But university in Sweden is free. You can technically, you get paid to go. So I'm like, oh, well, why don't I finish this degree I started 20 years ago? And I, I said to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pick something that is technically absolutely useless to what I do, like just as far as possible. And I came across this thing, it's called Ide Historia, which is the history of intellectual thought is what it is. And so it's just how the, the, the world of ideas evolved. And you, you, you had a couple ideas at the start, and then it went off into science and all these kind of different things and philosophy and blah, blah, blah. And so yeah. And then I started doing, I'm like, this is pretty amazing. And it also is very uh, applicable to daily life in a weird way, because I think it's important to try to understand things in, a, in an abstract way or from a high level. Um, because a lot of the time you get bogged down with problems and you don't understand how each problem is connected to each other. So it's been really super valuable for me to maybe take a step back and see how things have worked over time for good or for bad. And maybe see how we I can apply some of those structures to running and working in a startup. You started your career in the music industry in the 90s in Halifax, Canada. You were, we believe, the second employee at a label called Murder Records. How did you end up there? And, and can, can you talk about what happened uh, to the label since? So, yeah. So, I was going to school on the east coast of Canada. Halifax is sort of near Boston. But the way the land, uh, the coast works, you have to drive all the way around. It's like 18 hours. And I was going to school and all in the mid nineties, all these bands were getting signed to guitar bands were getting signed to sub pop in Seattle after the whole Nirvana thing. And so I hated one of the first times I, oh no, the second time I dropped out of university, I dropped out to go volunteer at this artist run label uh, called murder records. And the reason it's called murder records is the logo was a, um, a bunch of crows and that's what you call, like a group of crows is called a murder of crows. So it's a play on words. And it was run by this band called Sloan, who are very well known in Canada. And unlike today, back then, a lot of artist run labels, it wasn't a thing. So the idea that, that artists or an artist would get together and start releasing records, uh, their own records or people records from that area, it, it was very uncommon. And this, so this was long before the internet. And so you'd actually have to try to get records into stores and it was a completely different world now. Um, so it was fun. I did it for about three or four years. We ran a festival there. Uh, I toured a lot with bands in all over North America. And then I moved, that's when I moved to England, but the label still continues to this day. The band Sloan still run it. So it's been going for 20, 25 years. Awesome. Um, so you mentioned in the past that, that labels used to be the aggregator of attention, so to speak, um, that the public went to you for a certain kind of sound or genre or, or vibe. Where do you feel like that attention has gone today, in, in your opinion? Huh, that's a really good question, actually, because I was just talking to someone the other day about how 
like I'm even guilty when I go into Spotify, I scroll, I look at an album and I scroll all the way down to see what label it's on or who owns the, the, the copyright or whatever. And I did it at a, I actually went to a gig last night and I did it at the gig. Um, and I think it's challenging to try to figure, I, I think late, there is certain label identity still exists in a lot of ways, depending on how you listen to music. But then I think this idea of, con, this, 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 there's been a shift in context. So I think it is about more about individual songs and how with things like Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, there are other platforms available. Um, the, w- the way they make it very easy to jump around means that it's the idea of an album is less important, which means then you're thinking less about a catalog. And when you think about less about a catalog, you think less about who released that catalog. Um, so I would think it's a good question as to where it's shifted to. I just, I don't know if it's shifted anywhere. I don't know. I, I think it's just become less relevant to the way people find, listen and discover new music. So I think, it, I think it's still there. I just think it's less relevant and I don't know if it's been replaced by anything. It's just that the relevance has decreased is what I would say. So from Halifax and Murder Records, you moved to London. What took you there? Well, I was like, okay, I've worked at this smaller label for a handful of years. And I was at that time, this is like, this is crazy. But like in the mid nineties, no Canadian band could get arrested internationally. Like it sounds crazy to say now with like Drake and stuff. But back then you couldn't, there were stories of Canadian A&R guys going to working at a major label and then going to that major label in New York and not being able to get a meeting with their own, you know, American counterparts. It was brutal. So I'm like, okay, well, I've either got to go to the States or I've got to maybe go somewhere else. And I had just been to this conference called Medem in France back when I'm dating myself again, back when people had to go somewhere to meet, to talk about releasing records in other countries. Like this is how old school it used to be. And so I had just been to Medem and Con, and then I went to London for the first time. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, it seems pretty cool here. Why don't I move to London? And I was young enough and dumb enough to move. And I thought, oh, what the hell? I'm going to move to London. So I just moved when I was like 21, 22. Right on. And, and you had a, a couple of gigs there, um, one of which in the early two, 2000s, it was an independent promotion company called Four, um, I believe. Can you, can you talk a little bit about Four and, and some of the other um, kind of positions that you filled at the time? Yeah. So I, mo- I moved over and I, you know, I had a, I worked in a record warehouse as you do, you just got to start somewhere. And then I got a job doing A&R at Creation Records, which is the label that was founded by Alan McGee. Uh, there was a movie about him recently from the people who did Train Spotting, and he's famous for signing Oasis and Primal Scream and Super Furry Animals, Teenage Fan Club. So one of the UK's ultimately most important indie labels, uh, both from an independent point of view, but from an independent sort of guitar music background. So I worked there for a bit. Um, that's where I sort of cut my teeth and I left there and I worked for Alan, had a new label and he, I was his personal assistant and I was a terrible personal assistant. So he was like, this is stupid. Why don't you do radio promotion? And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, well, that's where you go to radio stations and you try to convince them to play records on the radio. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I'll try that. 
And the first band I worked with was this band called The Hives, who are from Sweden. And this was early 2000s, right when guitar music got popular again. So it was um, The Strokes, The White Stripes, all that American stuff. And then The Hives came along and it just totally blew up. So I went from like the basically the first band I did was like a top 10 album. Uh, and then I left there and I started this boutique radio promotion company where I started working with more and more bands, just trying to get them on the radio. And the point was that it was my company. So it made it nice and easy to choose things that I, I just liked basically. And I think that goes back to that comment at the start about wanting to make a contribution. If you're running your own company, one of the big advantages is that you get to work with the stuff you like and you think, okay, these are the bands that I think are important, no matter how big or small they become. I want to sort of push them forward. And then could you talk about, let's say, like the year leading up to you starting uh, Beta? What, what kind of led you in your career to start thinking about this, this idea of a company and, and what led you to actually pull the trigger on it? So like when I was doing radio promotion, like it's super weird. You go into, it's like an artificial environment. You go into a station like the BBC and you'd be sitting there and you'd, you'd, ha you'd have a CD player and you'd put the record on and you'd have to sit there next to opposite the person while you listen to this record that you wanted to, them to play on the radio. It was the weirdest thing ever, but that's sort of the way it worked. And then over time, it became like, oh, well, we're sending, it was called You Send It back then when, you know, that became Hightail and all that kind of stuff and Dropbox links. And then you had these platforms that sort of major labels use for sending high security music. And I'm like, this is brutal. Like you're getting sent stuff by email, like email attachments, like WAV, like high res WAV files is an email attachment. I see Rucker laughing in the background. So like, I'm like, there's got to be a better way to do this. And, and being the kind of person I am, I thought, oh, yeah, like, I, I can find a way to get this done. I can build this. Like, how, how long can it take? How much can it cost? And that was sort of, I just started talking to some friends and some developers I knew and just looking into and thinking, you know, we got to, somebody's got to do something about this because so much time is wasted. So much time is wasted. So you talked a little bit about this <clears throat> just now, but if you could sort of give us the elevator speech of what Beta is, who's it for, how do you sign up, how much does it cost, that sort of thing. So Beta is a platform for, Beta is the Swedish word for exchange, by the way, for all you who don't speak Swedish listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> we've got at least one hand in the room. And so Beta's... Uh, an app for sending and receiving digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way. And it's for anyone who works with digital, digital audio. So that can be anyone from a bedroom artist to the largest record companies in the world. But we've also got, during the pandemic, tons of podcasters and people who do audio books and all this kind of stuff. And it's just a free, it's a freemium product that you sign up and you can upload your audio uh, and share it with the people you need to share it with. And you know, there's a three different tier paid tiers, depending on what you need. If you need more security, if you need more sharing features. Um, and so, as I said, yeah, we have artists, managers, promotions, people, record labels, sync, 
tons and tons of different types of people just sending and receiving digital audio. And the reason it's different from, say, Dropbox or WeTransfer is that Beat is built for music. So the key with Beat is, is that we take advantage of audio files, unique properties. We read and write file metadata. So the information that lives in your file, everybody knows what I'm talking about when somebody sends you a WAV file or an MP3 and you import it in iTunes and you're like, there's no name, this track's great, but I don't know what it is. That's the file metadata. And then we allow file conversions on the fly. So, hey, I've only got a, a WAV and I need an MP3 or I need to send a stream only to someone. We solve that with one click. And we also have fast yet secure streaming. So you can't rip our links. So, you know, we prevent stream ripping. But those are the key three things. And that's what separates us from a lot of those other products. So besides the app, you also have an interview series called How We Listen, which our own Ealing Lin was recently featured on. So everyone should go check that out, obviously. Um, but what inspired that project and what kinds of information can readers and listeners get from it? That's a, that's a really good question. So what happened a couple of years ago, we were sitting around and I was getting pretty frustrated as I do about like, you know, you, both of you must know what I'm talking about. Like you sort of read the, the, like the press and it's like, oh, all you need to do to be successful in music is just get picked up by the algorithm. Or you get on, uh, I always like to say, the top of rap caviar, which I think is Spotify's um, most popular playlist. And we all know, like if you work in music, you know that the way artists are discovered and the way they become successful, it's a way, way, way more nuanced process. Like for example, like look at Chartmetric, your business is built on helping people understand what is happening with artists in different places and in different platforms. And so we thought like, this is ridiculous. So we started this weekly series where we just ask different people a standard 10 questions about how they find and discover new music. And what we started to learn and what became very clear is there are themes Certain people find music in different way, in certain ways, but then there's loads of other weird edge cases. So it's not just, you know, I'm 47, like, oh, I've never been on the internet. I only listen to 78s. Or if someone's a millennial, they've never seen uh, a record player before. It's just, it's way, way, way more nuanced. And so out of that, I started doing panels where we'd have me moderate with say an A&R person, a press person, and say um, a booking agent. And we started to realize the educational value in that, that a lot of newer artists or newer managers, people wanting to work in music, that they come into the music ecosystem going, okay, I've made a record or I'm working with an artist who has a record. What do I do next? And so this idea of how we listen expanded away from just doing just the interview series to panels. Um, now we do online events. And it's basically the, if, if you think of Beta as a tool, we also, we want to give artists and their team the tool, but we also want to give them the knowledge. And that how we listen represents the knowledge part of that. So how to be successful. And that's why we do the monthly events. We had someone from Deezer last month. We had Amber Horsberg, the Australian woman who's a marketing guru. Uh, and so it's just developed it. We're releasing a white paper on music sharing, the first one ever in December, uh, yeah, in about a month's time. So it's just blown up into this kind of way to 
give away knowledge for free because I think in the tech world, you can Google anything, how to do anything. But in music, I find that that information is a bit, it's not closely guarded. It's just maybe not shared as much. And we thought, okay, well, I like talking and I like telling people about how they can do things themselves. DIY is very important to me. Um, and so it's just ballooned from that, basically. I feel like we have a really good chance to nerd out on metadata with you. So I want to okay. exploit that right now. <laughs> so, because you know, it's something that Trimagic, you know, our team really deals with a lot as well. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the pain of metadata and, and how it can be such a troublesome thing to worry about in the music industry? And, you know, if you want to take the, the, the viewpoint of an independent artist or someone at a label or a marketer, you know, it's your choice. But can you just like talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like a lot of listeners might not understand what that really means and how important it is in, in this field. Sure. So, like, I'll, I'll start where I think the most people know about metadata. They're like, let, let's say I'm, I'm that person like I was last night. I'm at a gig. And I want to know something about an artist, or and I, I'm in. I use Spotify, you know, other apps available. Like, and I'm in there looking around, and I can't find something, or a piece of information's wrong, or the like, or there's a songwriter isn't credited. Like, it. What's behind the scenes? All that information is the metadata. So, as an artist, I think a lot of Artists know now that they need to send the right information to whoever their aggregator is to get that music on a Spotify to make sure the info is correct. So metadata is info. It's just simple, but there's a lot of it and there's more and more of it over time. And a big problem um, that newer artists might not know or think about is that there's years, decades and decades and decades of metadata from before there was a digital world that need to be cleaned up. And that's why you hear about it a lot. But metadata helps you get noticed. It helps you get discovered and it helps you get paid are the big, big things. But what the way we focus on metadata is this idea that say we're making a record together, the three of us, and we're in the studio where we swap some tracks. I send you a couple WAV files. You send me a couple MP3s. And then we're happy with what we've got. And we start sending around to people. In those files, there's a little information like the artist name, the album name, the track name. And this is sort of where the idea of best practices starts. Because as soon as I know who you are and you know who I am, but as soon as you start sharing those files to other people, they're reading them in their own applications on their computer, like in iTunes or anything else. And if those files are blank, then those people that you're sending it to don't really know, like say say somebody gets an MP3, the phone rings, they run away or they eat lunch, they come back and they press play where they were. I'm like, who is this? This album sounds great, but I can't remember who sent it to me. And the file name is XYZ532875. It's like, you can't act on the, the interest in the track. And so if you fast forward all the way to your track being on Spotify, for example, if somebody listens to your track and it's sort of the information's good enough, but they don't know who to pay Spotify, Spotify can't get you your money back. So it's this idea of tying your piece of music to information about you. And that, again, most people talk from release forward, 
But we like to think that this process starts very early from the day you start moving tracks around. So learning to tag your files properly so people know the artist name, the album name, super important in sync. Again, mood and all that kind of stuff. But the just the basic artist album track info is a good way to learn to be thinking about that. So when you get to that release stage, you've got all your information in one place and you can deliver it to the right people. So then you can get discovered, get played and get paid. So to go back to how we listened briefly, um, have you noticed any trends in terms of like how people are discovering or listening to music or is it sort of like all over the place? It, it is all over the place, but, but, but I'll give you one because this came up again um, in the last week. Uh, I don't know if it, you, both of you remember that Spotify, what's it called? This car thing. Have you heard about this? The little dongle that Spotify was going to do. They were doing yeah. a beta of it. Have you heard about that? Yeah, I yeah, heard okay. about it. Yeah. So, so this was, I don't know, this was like three years ago. And I'm like, you know, initially you go like, what on earth are they thinking? Like, what a waste of time and energy and money, right? And, you know, I, I saw it get slated by a couple like venture capitalists and stuff, right? But then, you know, about a couple of years ago, there was, a, there was a run of these How We Listen interviews. And it's all these people talking of various age groups and of like in, in different parts of the world, all talking about listening to CDs and cars. Because, hello, not everybody has a 2021 car with some fancy you know, dashboard or whatever. Not everybody's driving a Tesla with a dashboard. So what are people doing? If they're commuting, going to gigs, if they live outside of town, they're sitting in a car like some Toyota from, you know, 2010 or whatever, and it's got a CD player. So this idea that, oh yeah, it's dumb doing this Spotify car thing is completely wrong. It's like this untapped market. Then I think it was only, maybe we can find it for the show notes. There was a link that somebody sent me a couple of days ago going about saying how Spotify have like, like a 2 million person wait list for this thing. So I, th I think that's, what's interesting. It goes back to this idea that people have so many biases. And I think this is important for artists to think about like artists are like, Oh, well, I only use SoundCloud. I would never use TikTok or something like that. It's like everybody uses different platforms based on what they're familiar with. But the idea that there's only one channel for learning about um, music is completely false. And this count, there's this counterproductivity thing with the Spotify car thing. You think, well, who listens to music in cars? Well, actually lots of people, lots of different age groups, and they're a captive audience. So hence the 2 million uh, wait list for Spotify car thing. It's the only reason radio is still a thing is the car. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's why all these people talk about how Spotify or again, Apple Music or any of this radio, how how they're killing radio. But radio plays a different. You you, you at Chartmaker are going to know this. It plays a different role. It has a different, you know, phase in the in the discovery process, and it's very genre dependent, very genre dependent. So again, super nuanced. Yeah, totally. So to zoom out a little bit. What do you foresee the future of Beta looking like? Like, what's your ultimate vision for it? Well, I think ultimately people need 
to send and receive digital audio in a better way. And that's not just using beta. I think people need to be much more thoughtful about the idea of thinking about the recipient. And this is where the knowledge thing comes in. And this is what's going to come out in this white paper is the idea that there's a it's disjointed the way senders share and recipients receive. And our goal as a company is to make that experience better. And everybody who works with music and digital audiophiles broadly has this problem. Like it's it's without without question. Everybody has this problem. So our goal is to help as many people send and receive digital audio in a clean, simple, and secure way. And the end result of that ultimately is that people listen to more music they're sent sort of before it's out in the world and before it's public and that they save time because this is the biggest time sink ever. Like the amount of time people spend clicking, downloading, forgetting, retyping metadata, all that kind of stuff. So our goal is to help as many people as possible to send and receive digital audio in a clean, simple and secure way. NFTs. We're going to go there. So I guess, first of all, you know, what are some of your just general thoughts? You know, we've all been, of course, reading much about them in the past, you know, few months or, or most of this year. Is something, is, are NFTs and, and beta something that, that might cross paths sometime soon? Is it something that seems appropriate considering uh, the company's position? Yeah, like it's cool. Like you ask great questions because I, I, that sounds, in theory, quite out of left field, but we're sort of experts in moving files around the internet. And, you know, we've already been approached by at least one company about NFT stuff. Because if you think about it, we just, you know, we help people send stuff from A to B, but ultimately that's a network of, say, like a plumbing system sending files around. And so in in theory, yes, because there's not, there's a couple, there's a couple companies that do, storage for FTs, like uh, for, I don't know what's the word for it, like forever storage, (laughs) like that they'll keep it forever. But there's not a lot of people doing the um, sending and receiving. So yes, in in theory, we we could get into that depending on if people want to build a product on top of our platform. Um, But I like NFTs, it's it's a weird weird world. Like it's the idea is pretty crazy, but I'm curious to see. I'm curious to see where it goes, and the reason is, is because what's his name? Like, is it Gary Vanderchuk, the guy who used to sell wine? He's big on, he's big on Facebook or whatever. Gary V, yeah, he's huge. He's huge on all social media. Yeah, and 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 so and so, like Gary V, he was some person was interviewing him, and. This is what blew my mind. He was talking about the, have you seen the video where he talks about the blue check? She, she was saying, this, this interviewer, they were saying like, look, hey, like why, why, are, why is all this digital stuff important? Like, why is it important? You know, no one sees it. And he said, well, you, you know what? Like who sees your couch at home? There are probably more people that see your blue check on Instagram than they see your couch at home. And it's like that kind of thing, considering he's older, like he's not a millennial or whatever, makes complete sense to me. So even though it sounds a bit weird to sell 
a single version of a digital good, it completely makes sense. It, it, it does completely make sense, but it sounds like the wild west at the moment. So I'm glad I'm not involved in it directly. Cool. Well, we'll see what the future holds. Another kind of parallel technology is hi-fi audio. So of course, it, it's already a crucial part of, of Beta. And a lot of streaming platforms um, that are have already rolled it out or at least are, are thinking about it. Can you explain why high fidelity or lossless audio um, is important in the writing process? Well, plain and simple, when you, when you make a record and you're either making a CD or you're cutting it to vinyl or you're sending it to a streaming platform, you want to make sure that the best audio quality lands with these endpoints. And so traditionally, that's why WAV, like WAV files are very difficult this is boring chit chat, but WAV files are very difficult to deal with because the information in the file is written in a way that's different than other file formats. And you can add out artwork to them and stuff. But the audio quality is great and that's why it's the standard. And so it's super important for the finished product that you use a, a, a lossless file type. But what is difficult in this world of lossless audio is the fact that ironically a lot of platforms you use like spotify is only 320 it's an mp3 or an aug vorbis maybe they use i think um so the audio quality on the internet isn't that good because generally people are more i think more concerned with just getting the track and listening to it quickly and so a lot of the audio quality you hear on the internet is not that good but then also the, the, a lot of the tech, like the hardware that people use, isn't that good. So if you're pumping it through crappy old school Apple headphones, whereas the, um, the AirPods, I think, are very good. The auto quality is very good. So the problem with a WAV file is it's huge. It's ginormous. So if I went, out, if I went on it, out onto the street and tried to download a WAV file through my 4G connection, you know, I'd be burning through loads of data. But I think, the so that's why everybody uses MP3s. But I think the future is going to be, just like all these streaming platforms, is going to be that the quality, as data gets cheaper and cheaper, the audio quality is going to get better and better for streaming. And so you'll be in it, because I don't download anything to my phone when I'm listening to a, on a streaming platform. I just use my data. Um, so if it was all WAV files, it'd be a nightmare. Um, so that's the way I see it going, but we're not there yet because we're in this weird position where it's too slow to download everything in lossless. Plus the tech that most people are using isn't actually that good to take advantage of it, but it's definitely, definitely moving in that direction. I read a really interesting study. It's, it's years old at this point, so I don't know how much it applies, but I remember reading that people who grew up listening to MP3s actually preferred it to listening to a, a lossless form of audio. I, and I think, you know, basically whatever the takeaway was, it's, it's kind of what you, you grew up with, that, that your brain kind of whatever seeks um, audio-wise. Do you, I mean, and this has been an ongoing debate about high fidelity streaming, you know, does the end users care? Obviously, Obviously, I think a lot, a lot of people do. do. I think, I want to ask you is, how do you feel like, like that breaks out in terms, terms of, of maybe the genre thing or maybe it's a demographic, demographic thing? Um, how do you think the end user or what types of end users might care about high fidelity? 
I think if if you're um, somewhat of a professional, I th- as in you work with, I, I, I don't want to personally define what a professional is, but someone who does a lot of work with audio, be that audio f- files for music or any, any other kind of audio work, there is, there's an element that it needs to be perfect. But I think even they would be able to listen to something in a purely reference way of a lower quality. And I think a lot of them, this is what I think is quite funny. A lot of them don't really know what quality they're being streamed, what the streams they're getting from certain different places or the way audio files work, the difference between um, like a compressed audio file, like flack, even though the audio is lossless. So versus a web, there's all that kind of stuff uncompressed. But I, I think it's, again, back to this uh, white paper we're releasing. A lot of people talk about security. They're worried about security. So you say, they say we're, you know, five out of five. I'm, in, I'm worried about security. And then you ask them, what are you worried about security? I'm not really sure, but I'm definitely worried about security. And I think it's the same with audio, with audio that people say, yes, I'm an audiophile. And then it's like you're listening to that on 192. Oh, I had no idea. <laughs> so I, I think, but the flip side is then again, like I listen to tons of records now that I had never listened to digitally when I'm listening to say Spotify and with these AirPods and things have improved in the last four or five years. I'm like, oh my God, this sounds amazing. Like have they remastered it or something? So a lot of the time you can't tell or you're not thinking about it. But it is becoming more, I like, I haven't even tested any of this spatial audio stuff because, you know, a couple people have told me to, I just haven't had time. Like, so people know it's important and there is a di- very different experience, but I think they think, most people think they're more concerned about audio quality than they actually are. Because I think a lot of the time, if you get a decent stream, the experience of the track is what you want it to be, that you're connecting with your feelings about the artist, the lyrics, as long as it's not a, a lime wire, you know, 15 years ago. You just, you just brought me back to my college days real quick with the lime wire. <laughs> 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 All right. So uh, let, let's bring these two technologies together. Uh, is there a world where Abita becomes a place to host hi-fi audio NFTs that aren't available anywhere else? Could it become a sort of exclusive streaming platform for NFT owners? Thoughts? My God, do you, do, you, do you want do you want to just type up a little proposal and send me that, <laughs> and then we'll have a little chit chat. We'll send it over after the call. <laughs> Great. Do you have anything else you want to mention or plug or just talk about? No, I think like I I, th- I think we covered most things. I love the connection between the um, uh, metadata like file metadata and then, you know, the metadata post-release. Cause I don't think people make that connection enough. I think that's super important. I just, you know, getting in links to beta.com and how we listen.org uh, is always good. And we do monthly events. I love doing those once a month. They're super fun, you know, so all that kind of stuff. I just think it's good for people to know what we do, but if you point them to how we listen, it's all there. Cool. Well, thanks so much for chatting with us today, Mark. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It was super fun. A couple laughs. <laughs> awesome. Well, pleasure meeting you, Mark. You have a great uh, rest of your evening. Thanks a okay. lot. We'll talk to you later. Right, bye. 
How Music Charts is written and produced by Jason Hoven and Rutger Rosenborg of Chartmetric. As part of our effort to equip artists with the power of music analytics, we've just rolled out a new artist tier, which you can sign up for at app.chartmetric.com slash plan slash artist for about the price of a coffee per week. Free Chartmetric accounts are available at chartmetric.com and podcast notes are at blog.chartmetric.com. You can also subscribe there for additional insights delivered to your inbox right after we publish. Did we mention we have a YouTube channel? That's right. Subscribe for Chartmetric tutorials and tips for indie artists. Follow our thoughts on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Chartmetric. That's Chartmetric, no S. That's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.